what we do from time to time is we do a Q&A, a question and answer. And the reason I do that is like two or threefold. One is because we just got back from Sundays in July, and it felt like we haven't seen each other in uh, over six weeks, and then we come back in, and there's really no kind of interaction uh, with me and you other than just my preaching, which is a part of what we do, but I, I like more. I like to see where you're at. I think it's very, very helpful. And then uh, the second reason of that is because it's good, I think, for the variety is helpful from time to time. And thirdly, I just wasn't prepared. <laughs> I mean, I was there. I was there. I was telling my preaching class yesterday, I go, I've got two more points to go. Uh, and so, you know, I'm going to do it. And then, you know, about, I think it was four o'clock this morning, I'm going like, nah. <laughs> so, no, and honestly, I had this plan. So, um, and uh, someone gave me a really great coffee drink before I came up, which I'm so glad, uh, my family. And uh, I didn't, I, it tasted so good, I didn't realize it was four shots of espresso. So, no, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to be totally fine. <laughs> so, so I'm going to have a lot of fast answers today. So, um, so what Q&A, so what question and answer really is, and sometimes people don't know this format because they haven't done it, is if you have a question, uh, again, it can be uh, about something that you are studying in the Bible. It can be something uh, that we've talked about in Psalm 51. It can be anything on the Psalms themselves. It can be something personal, application-oriented. It can be about anything from um, the Christian life that would make sense that I would be able to answer. I'm not obviously going to be able to answer, you know, encyclopedia kind of questions, but anything that um, that re- relates to your growth as a Christian, things you're going through. I just had a couple of people before I came up uh, ask me some questions about because I teach acting, I've taught acting for 34 years uh, about. Christians in the workplace and, and in the um, acting uh, world and how can you know what projects to take. And so people stop me all the time and ask me just questions. And um, I'm not prepared for them, but then again, you're always prepared for them because that's your world. So if you have a question, I, I, know, I know Jim does. He's looking down. He's concentrating. What, is it, what are you going to say? No, that's okay. No, if you, when you wake up, we can ask a question. And uh, no, it's okay. As soon, as soon as he knew that I wasn't preaching, he just checked out, which, because uh, he's, he's front row for a reason. Um, so anyway, so it doesn't, we, I don't know if we have a microphone that we can take to people. Okay. So, um, so um, the gunning man will do it. So who wants to speak? Who wants to ask a question? Right over here. Oh, Gary, are you still here? I mean, good, he's back. Yeah, right. So we're going to do another goodbye uh, tonight afterwards. Oh, that's great. If you weren't here, we had a wonderful goodbye and the Bible study and David, you know, kind of made everything happen. And I think uh, it was so funny, David Torres said, you know, I don't plan on ever leaving Grace Church, but if I do, I want one just like that. The game was, it was such a wonderful time. But hey, Gary, good to see you. Okay. Who got sick? Oh, Okay. Ha, <laughs> <laughs>
I can relate. I don't know why. So, no. So th- this is just a question for anybody, right, Gary? <laughs> oh, this is for you. Okay. Um, well, what, what I would suggest, because I just got back from Wichita, Kansas a couple of weeks ago where I taught, and um, one thing I think that you need to be prepared for if you are a Grace Church member and have been for years is that when you go anywhere else, um, first of all, they're going to be very, you're, you're kind of, and I, I don't want to say this in a prideful way, but you become like a special person. Uh, I had someone uh, was at uh, Regen, and they were saying that as they were at Regen, this young person was telling me that from other churches, and they were saying, where do you go to church? And he goes, I, I go to Grace Community Church. And they go, you go to the church that John MacArthur pastors? And like he was a rock star at you know, Regen, even though there's <laughs> hundreds of them there. Uh, so it's, there's an attitude, and I think we should be humbled by that and thankful for that. Uh, and at the same time, just be aware that people are going to say, well, what was Grace Church like? And what are? And you're also going to be, in my mind, an ambassador, not just for Grace Church, obviously, but for the Lord, but for the fact that you know, and, and I don't mean this to be boastful, you know more from being here about the Bible, I'm not talking about godliness, I'm not talking about sanctification, than most people do their entire life. My mother was a Christian from I think the time she was maybe 14 until she went to be with the Lord in her 90s. And uh, when Lori and I first uh, dated, we had both been saved maybe just a few years, and we went to visit mom and dad. Uh, The amount of information that we had as brand new believers from being here just a few years was shocking to my mom. And, you know, knowing things about what our pastor just taught this morning about eschatology and that just blew their minds. Like, where do you get this information? No one's taught like that. Most places do not teach what we kind of assume is regular fare. So I just wanted you to be aware for that. So you're going to become possibly the Bible answer man. So, you know, so people literally are going to come up to you and say, hey, Carrie, welcome. I'm so glad. Grace Community Church, huh? Let me ask you something about the tribulation. And it'll happen, you know. So just be prepared for that and don't be shocked. And I, I would... And then also, um, I would say be prepared to know that um, there is life outside of Grace Church. I know it's a rumor, and a lot of people don't believe it, but uh, (laughs) nah, Uh, there is life outside of Grace Church, uh, but it's a weak life. No, I'm kidding, but it's, uh, um, but you need to be prepared. It's a different life, you know, and I think you know this from just, you know, if you ever get to go anywhere uh, during Christmas or if you're ever out of town, you realize that what we experience here in terms of the kind of church it is, uh, is so different. Um, one thing that I do know is that if you go to a church that is poor in its doctrine, let's say it's um, topical, let's say that they are very much teaching, um, I, don't, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, how, tips on how to uh, uh, work in such a way to, um, you know, be friendly with those around you, whatever it might be. My brother's church, this is really bad, I'm going to intersect my thoughts here, um, they were going through a series on Toy Story. I don't know if I told you about that. So we're, we go to visit my, my brother's church, 
Hello, Grant. This is me talking to you uh, uh, in Kansas City. And they were we got in on the Toy Story 4 movie where they would show a clip of the movie. And then the uh, pastor would exposit the scene, and um, which was revolutionary to me. I'd never seen that before. <laughs> and I was got concerned about that. And I you know, talked to him, of course. And so then just this week, uh, I found something. Uh, called Turning Worship into a Clown Show, and this is not my brother's church, but this is talking about another church here in Southern California that you could look up who happens to critique the fact that they were expositing uh, Toy Story. So I don't know why that's such a popular movie in the Christian church, but the point I'm trying to make is it's so sad. So you're going to go there and Expect what? Expect loving people. That's been my experience. People in the church are loving, <clears throat> uninformed. Uh, let things go. We'll be more open toward homosexuality, transgenderism. Uh, we'll kind of uh, blanket it under the. And I don't think this will be true of the church you're going to uh, in San Antonio at all, because I know the people there. I know Chance, and I know the folks that are there. But just be expecting it to be theologically light and love heavy. Uh, and I don't know why that's true, but sometimes the more theological a church is, the more they can be um, tight-lipped, not as loving as you might expect, which is ironic. But the more kind of fuzzy their theology is, for some reason they are just very effusive with their love and their openness, and so it should not be that way. It should be that the more theological you are, the more loving you are, but it's not always the case, my experience. So be be expecting that okay and i can't believe i can't believe you're still here i love it though so lunch is on you that is amazing (laughs) that's amazing did you guys hear that so yeah we will yeah we need a microphone gunning the running gunning (laughs) yeah Thank you. We're going to go to a theological question now. Uh, no, that's a great question. John did a wonderful job this morning of taking a lot of passages, and he made a comment, and I wrote it down because he said, you know, I'm going to give you a lot of passages here with not a lot of commentary. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm going, ah, because it's the commentary that helps me, of course, but the passages are essential. Um, when you think of this, I, I always think of 1 Thessalonians 2, when it talks about the man of lawlessness, and I'm just going to read this to you and then make a point, and you know this, I'm sure, but uh, Paul says in Second uh, uh, Thessalonians 2, let no one in any way deceive you, for it has not come, uh, meaning the end, unless apostasy, apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes seat in the sanctuary of God, exhibiting himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know, here's the point, what restrains him now so that his time he will be revealed? For the ministry of lawlessness is already at work, so I will refer to who the it is in a moment. The it is a he Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. 
And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. So the Holy Spirit, most theologians would agree, is the one being spoken of when it says, he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. When is he taken out of the way? When the man of lawlessness comes. So the man of lawlessness comes, the Holy Spirit's restraint is released, and therefore, as Pastor John has said countless times, all hell breaks loose on earth. So what's the role of the Holy Spirit there? Is he not restraining at all? He would have to restrain uh, to some degree, but his degree of restraint is removed. So you might ask yourself, why is the world we live in the way it is right now, as wicked as it is? And that's kind of the wrong question. The real question is, why is it as restrained as it is right now? It should be uh, 10 times worse than what it is. It should be uh, in the days of Noah. It should be that the Lord is going to destroy the earth again because of the lawlessness that's here. But the Spirit of God, one of his main ministries, other than conversion, illumination of the Word of God, uh, new birth, allowing men and women to recognize that their sin is against Jesus Christ and their unbelief, and so they repent. His other ministry is the ministry of restraint. And so now he'll be gone. Um, his, His major restraint will be gone, and therefore the world will enter into the tribulation. And so what's that going to look like? Really, really bad. It's going to be corruption to a degree that we don't understand at this point. And so what's his role? If you ever want to read a a really great sermon, there's a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called A Supernatural Light. Um, And that's the abbreviation. The title is very, very long, but A Supernatural Light. And he's talking about the role of the Holy Spirit uh, during the time, just uh, in, in every way. And the Spirit of God has so much more influence than you might think. Even the lives of unbelievers, even unbelievers can't really access common grace except for the blessing of the Holy Spirit onto unsaved people. In other words, you can't get away from God. He might not be acting in such a way as to save, but he's acting in such a way as to assist. And so the fact that an unbeliever can say, wow, it's a beautiful day today, that's actually a ministry of the Holy Spirit, even in the life of an unbeliever. Not a salvific work, but a work of his generation. Because Without the Spirit of God, there is no appreciation. Or, and, and Jonathan Edwards explains it in detail. But So I'd say limited, but, but uh, definitely not to the extent that it is he has now. And again, I just did a foopal. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. And every time that pronoun comes up, I know this is the age of pronouns, but always be thinking, no, it's he, he, he. Does that kind of answer? Okay, <laughs> okay good, good. All right, back here. Run, Gunning, run. Okay, no, that's... <laughs> First off, you said you were religious. Yeah. Is the woman the Lord? <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs> oh, he's playing off the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where it's supposed to go. No, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uriah to be able to become a Jew or a proselyte? 
Well, you have to go back to what you do know, because the Bible doesn't say, you know, the Bible doesn't explain that. And that's the only questions that Frank answers or asks me, because <laughs> if the Bible tells him, he knows. <laughs> and so he knows already. Um, it ha- we have to go back just to our, um, our doctrine of salvation, right? No one is saved except through faith in God and his provision. So even back in the Old Testament, before Christ was revealed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, all Jews or even um, Gentiles, if they're going to be, whether they're God-fearers or whether they're uh, Jews and true Jews, you know, is, not all Israel is Israel, Paul says. So some of Israel have believed and some has not. If you're um, a Canaanite and you are functioning within the army of Israel, the, the understanding, the premise would be, and that Bathsheba is married to him, that he has been converted. In some way, he's come to faith in the God of Israel, Yahweh. And the fact that he has come to faith in Yahweh uh, assumes a few things. One, that he had access to the Word of God. Somehow he had access to the Scriptures, which it's kind of like when you think about the book of Job. We don't know how Job knew God. We, this is, Job is probably the first book ever canonized, and therefore, in terms of the order, uh, it should come first. And therefore, you think of Job, and you think, well, how did he know? What, what, what were, we talked about the visions and dreams that he might have. So we don't know how he accessed that. Uh, but somehow, some way, the, o- the way you're only saved is through the Word of God revealing to you by the Holy Spirit the truth about the Savior, which at that point uh, was an unknown doctrine in the sense of Jesus Christ being the Savior and the Messiah, but putting his trust, just like, honestly, Adam and Eve or anyone who came before the revelation of Christ, putting their faith in God's provision for their sin. They knew they needed a sin sacrifice, and so somehow, some way, God saved this pagan and allowed him into the army. So you have, you know, the word is funny. Sometimes you use the word conversion, and I said that at first, and I had to recoil. Conversion is a word that a lot of times Jews use when people will say, yeah, well, I was a Christian, but I converted to Judaism. I was a Jew, and now I converted to Christianity. That's talking about a religious system. I converted. I, I was going into the synagogues and functioning, and now I'm going to a church. None of that is the language of redemption. You know, conversion, once you're saved, means transformation. I'm just transformed. Uh, so it could be about sanctification. But he had to have been redeemed. He had to have been saved. He, he wasn't just converting from one religion to the next. Does that make sense? So it's not just a religion issue, but an issue of, of his heart. And by that premise, we have to assume also that though he was murdered indirectly by David, allowing him to be on the front lines of battle and die, he's in heaven. So though David's crime was so intense, both the child that was born, which is a whole other issue we can talk about, and also Uriah, both are in heaven now, and we'll see them one day. But how that happened, we can only assume. Yeah. Right. You get an example of that when David uh, is enforced to flee yeah. from Israel and he, and he goes to Gath. Yes. So by the time you get to the time where Absalom is ready to take over the kingdom and David is fleeing with his men, 
it, it mentions that 600 men uh, came from the town of Gath, which is in Philistia. So there's 600 converts when David was there. So that's just one example. Oh. David's influence, there were hundreds saved just by the influence of him, and none of them are Jews. Oh. But yet they're in David's army. They're part of his, the Cherethites are part of his I mean, that's a great example, and just as you were speaking, I'm thinking of Dr. Street's series on Ruth. You know, all of the conversions that had to happen there, Ruth herself, again, having to, to be saved and believe on Yahweh, you know, was, again, un, unfathomable. And, but again, the Bible doesn't explain it. It explains the, the doctrine of salvation in different places, putting it together, but in terms of that it happened, it just happened, and then we have to go back and, and just marvel. Okay, over here. Thanks, Andrea. What's your name? Hi, my name is Elizabeth. Hey, Elizabeth. I have a question about the Hebrews 9, verse 27, that says, And as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, how do we explain Lazarus dying and then Jesus raising him up from the dead? That's a really good question, isn't it? I'm glad you're only giving me the easy ones. Uh, um, yeah, so um, we, I don't know how to explain that other than the fact that the Bible says that it happened. Um, Jesus did allow Lazarus to die, waited four days, came back, uh, raised him, and he says to his disciples, so that you may believe. So I'm raising him from the dead to show you, A, that I am the resurrection, the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, and that I have the power uh, over life and death. So he raises him from the dead. Then the question, of course, and myself included, is uh, what did Lazarus remember? Is he like Paul where he went to the third heaven and was witnessed things that were inexplicable and that he couldn't explain, and therefore uh, it was never mentioned? It never talks about it. Um, you know, so... In that particular case, we'd have to say that obviously he did not incur judgment. So the question would be just what we know of theology. And it's a different Lazarus, just so you know, when Jesus is talking in the parable I'm about to quote in Luke. He talks about Lazarus and the rich man and where they go down into this place of, of basically Hades. And because there's communication between him, Lazarus, and the rich man, uh, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. And so... It begs the question, is, is that Lazarus, which is not the Lazarus that you're referring to in John 11, is that Lazarus a Lazarus who is kind of showing us that maybe he went to a, a, a kind of Hades, a kind of holding place uh, for believers until he was to come back? I don't know. I, I don't know. And just so you know, to kind of vindicate myself, if anybody explains that to you, they don't know what they're talking about because it, it's just not in the Bible. It doesn't explain. So you have to kind of use reason and think um, he's going to have to die again. So that, that, that phrase in Hebrews is going to happen. Um, judgment, however, for a believer is not going to happen in the way that Hebrews 9 is speaking of in terms of judgment unto condemnation. So he wasn't judged. He was, he was covered by the blood of Jesus Christ before Jesus even died. He was uh, covered by the, uh, the retroactive, if you will, um, atonement of Christ. So I don't know. I, I, I'd love to know, but I don't. 
you know, but all I know is it happened, and that what you mentioned in Hebrews, which I think is much more of an important question, is that we know we're going to die, uh, which is something that I think very often believers um, neglect to consider. Uh, we have to consider, I think on a daily basis, I hate to be morbid, but I, I, I think about dying every day, and it's not just because I'm older now than I was. Uh, I, I, I've been thinking about dying for a long time, <laughs> and it's, it's not just because I'm closer, even though I'm sure that's true. I know that's true. What am I saying? Um, it's, it's because that reality is what makes you come face-to-face with your relationship with the Lord. Are you prepared? So there is one life. There's not many. I came out of the New Age religion, so maybe that's part of it, because when I was saved, I was uh, believing that there were different ways to God, and so that you could be uh, having different ascended masters that you would identify with. Uh, mine happened to be Jesus, but you could also say that um, the ascended master of a Mormon would be Jesus, or anybody, or it could be Confu- Confucius or Buddha, and that ascended master would uh, connect you to the light realm, assist you to the light realm, which is leads you to the great ocean of love and mercy, which is the way they describe God. And so in that way, um, I knew that if I, if you guys were not following me, that's totally fine. <laughs> but uh, you're going like, oh, be lost in that way. Don't be lost in the other way. Um, that you could die, and if you didn't have your karma in order, the, real, uh, the wheel of reincarnation, then you would just keep coming back until you got it right. And so when you die, if you haven't evolved, then you would come back. Uh, if it was a bad life as a dog or something, if it was a good life, you would come back. For some reason, everybody comes back as Napoleon. And, uh, and you have this more evolved life. But then the Bible, which was shocking to me, even though I knew it as a little boy. No, when you die, you die once. And then there comes judgment. There is no time for you to reevaluate. There's no time for you to uh, have someone pray you out of purgatory, as is the Roman Catholic belief. You are dead and judged. And so either to eternal condemnation or unto eternal life. So that's where I thought you were going with it, which is a more necessary thing to think about to have an answer than, than, even though you had a great question, uh, than to know, like, where is Lazarus? Lazarus, we don't know. Uh, We know it happened, but in terms of judgment, uh, coming after you die, we must face that. Uh, That's the most important thing, and how to explain that, we can... We can ask Lazarus uh, what happened when we see him. So, yeah. 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 He didn't even die. And so, uh, you know, some people think of, um, you know, he just got swept up and, and you, you kind of hope that that will be uh, our situation with the rapture, that if God chooses to rapture the church in our lifetime, we won't die either. And so it will be... Um, we will be with the Lord in the twinkling of an eye, and we will actually have resurrection bodies to the degree where we will be able to think and move and feel and act without sin, to be as much like deity as unredeemed man can be, or as redeemed man can be like uh, deity. It's, it's an amazing thought. It's like, it's mind-blowing. Um, so we'll be like, we can ask Enoch too. And I'm not trying to dodge the question. It's just, that's all there is, so... Hey.
Okay. And the last one that counsel says, he was like, you know, what happened to him after he was arraigned and tried and after he got the warrant was gone from him. And while I'm thinking, he, he was a gambler with the Holy Spirit in his power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So that, that's what you'll see in my interesting marriage to a sister who was anointed with that anointed Jesus of Mary. So it's kind of like I was kind of looking before, but I was reading it yesterday morning, and I was thinking, what is, which place in the scripture that I really need for that anointed of the Holy Spirit that day? I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Uh, give me that verse one more time, because I was, I was listening to you. Thirty-six. Um, you know, Jesus, uh, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed. Well, again, <laughs> you guys are so wonderful. Uh, <laughs> I know this is what the Bible says, but what if it didn't say that? Um, so, uh, <laughs> so I, I guess I guess the real question is: Would Jesus? Maybe this is what you're thinking. Would Jesus? have operated as God, you know, second person of the Trinity, with the same power on earth if he had not been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And uh, because that's what I think when I read that. My, my first thought is, well, if he's God, why would he need God, the third person, to assist God in the second person? You know what I'm saying? So, um, and I think the the answer goes in my mind back to Hebrews that he is our high priest, that he is the one who assists us. He's the one that identifies with our weaknesses and our frailties. So he lived a life, ironically, which is really important for the church to understand. He lived a life as God, perfect without sin, and yet fully dependent on the words of the Father and the power of the Spirit. And there's no greater analogy than that for our lives. I mean, that's exactly, of course, we're sinful, not sinless. And so the question always is, if that is true for Jesus, how much more for us? I think about that with prayer, and not to switch gears here, but I think about prayer where it says that Jesus would go away to a lonely place and pray. And I would think about how hard it is sometimes for us to have a prayer life that's consistent and so how hard it is for us to sometimes, I know people talk about prayers if it's um, such a difficult thing. I was mentioning this to my son the other day where I said, you've got to pray when you don't want to pray. You've got to pray when you want to pray, and you've got to pray until you want to pray. You just, you just pray because that's what God has commanded. But you look at Jesus' life and you say, but God, who knew all things and lived completely dependent upon his Father and by the power of the Spirit, was driven to pray, and I'm not, and I'm not sinless, and I'm full of, of shortcomings, and, I, and yet the greatest example has been given to me. That seems ironic to me that I would even not even question it, but that I wouldn't strive toward it. So I think to go back to Acts, that the power of the Spirit, which is very important, that he lived according uh, to the power of the third person of the Trinity, uh, completely submissive on earth to his Father in word of day. I do nothing except what the Father tells me to do. And yet he was perfect, God, very God, shows me as an example. And again, I don't know the reason for that, but my assumption is that makes him even more clearly the perfect high priest. 
That's appropriate. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Thank you. Yeah. So, but you know, I never feel like I'm fully prepared. Yeah. Yeah, great question. Um, I don't know, well, I, again, I don't know exactly what you mean, but I'll, I'm going to interpret like what it means by getting it right, you know. Well, I'm sorry. What I mean is I, I come in as a sinner, yeah. and I need forgiveness. Yeah. It reminds me of a situation, and then I'll kind of follow it back. One time, we used to have our uh, new visitors ministry on the patio. We had little carts out there before we got that one-story building, which I refer to every single week. And uh, <laughs> the Welcome Center, I know people are like mouthing what I say <laughs> as I say it. And that's cool. You know, my job is to keep it fresh, keep it fresh, keep it fresh. But, uh, <laughs> and I could just see the people around me as soon as I start, their heads go down. And it's like, you know, but... Um, and the only people who still have their heads up are new visitors, so they're going like, what's going on? Um, is we had carts, and so one time a guy came out of the worship center. He was very, very upset. We were doing communion, and there had been a uh, church discipline issue had come up. He was very upset, and he says, do you know what's going on in there? And I didn't know what he was talking about, and I said, no. He goes, they're calling out a name of a sinner, you know, and he goes, then call me out. I'm a sinner too. And I understood he'd never seen that before, and I've seen it many times. And I just tried to talk to him, and I said, well, I said, I'm a sinner too, but the difference between us and that gentleman is that we're repentant. He's not. He, he refuses to repent. I don't know what it was, sexual sin, um, stealing, whatever it was. He would not repent. So the idea is when we go in as a sinner, we, we, we come as sinners and if we have not repented or if we have not confessed our sin, which goes back to Psalm 32, if you've been with us as we've gone through Psalm 52 and, or 51 and 32, there's this unconfessed sin that we can live with as believers, which is so mind-boggling. So you go, you, know, you work in your nine-to-five job, and every day you go, and it's in the back of your mind, this sin that you're dealing with, but you're not going to confess it. You're not going to deal with it. You just kind of compartmentalize it, put it in the back of your head and do your work. You come home, same issues, and, and then Sunday comes, and you're here, and all of a sudden, we're going to do communion today, and that compartmentalization starts to come forward, and you start to think about, wait a second, wait a second, and you, you deal with it, and you go, Lord, I've got something between me and you, and I haven't confessed it, and this is my time. I've got to confess it to you. I don't, need a, I don't need a priest in the Roman Catholic tradition. I have a high priest in heaven, and I have neglected. So I come to you, and I confess it. And many times, I think that when we do uh, the Lord's table, that we need that time where there's just silence, where we don't say anything. It's, sometimes we just kind of we have such an agenda to get through it that I appreciate when Pastor John just doesn't say anything. And so I'm going through my heart and I'm thinking, even today, you know, do I have anything I haven't confessed? You know, I might feel bad about something. I might feel like something's out of whack, but am I in sin in anything? Do I need to confess it? And it's during that time where if you confess with your mouth, then God will forgive, First John. And so you know you've been forgiven, and you know you've aligned to what he desires. And now, prayerfully, the weight of the burden is released. Now, you're still a sinner. 
you'll never not be a sinner until you get to heaven. Um, it's, you'll be either a forgiven sinner um, that's unrepentant or a forgiven sinner that's, not, that's still in their sin. Um, and that's another question. How can you still be in your sin if you're forgiven? Well, that's what the whole Bible's about. The whole Bible's been written to, you know, uh, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And you're going, oh, so I'm tempted by a, a, a sin that everybody deals with? Yes, and God will provide a way of escape for you. Why is Paul telling us that? Because we're going, to endure, we're going to deal with sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. These are not from the Father, but from the world. First John. So um, you may not feel different. And if, if my salvation or my standing before God was based on my feelings, then I would be... I would be constantly lacking assurance because I would be sitting there going, I don't know what's, you know, I've, I'm not doing anything that I can think of. I'm, I'm, you know, I've confessed my sin before God. Why do I feel the weight of this, you know, um, this, 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 this anchor that's like not, it's weighing me down, this encumbrance, as Hebrews would say. Well, maybe, A, there's something you haven't confessed and you need to do. And that's why, again, to go full circle, that's why prayer is so important. Because you might not think you have anything to pray about. <laughs> and then you start praying. And then you go, okay, Lord, let me see. Um, well, let me pray for my marriage. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, oh no, I've got so much to pray for. And, and then you go, okay, enough about my marriage. Uh, let me pray for my children. Oh, no. You know, and you start to work through it until finally you come and, you know, let me, let me pray about my sanctification, my purity before you. And then it's like, you know, why am I not praying all the time? Because I feel there are undealt with things that I need to deal with. So I think communion gives us an opportunity to deal with those major sins that, you know, uh, that you're aware of that you're not confessing. I think there's a lot of sin, and I'm not, I'm not trying to just, you know, hype up um, total depravity, but there's a lot of sin that we deal with that, I mean, you just can't know all of it. You know, when I came to Christ, when Christ saved me, I basically asked him, I said, Lord, save me from myself, from my entire life, because I couldn't categorize all that stuff. And to this day, um, I, I, I'll have things that pop up in my mind that I don't remember confessing when I was an unbeliever, but that immediately I confess when I think of it, that in fact, it's even still in my mind I confess it, and um, I just keep moving because I know that he's covered it all. Um, You know, he, a dear, dear uh, person in my life said, you know, he's not angry with me, uh, but I do know that my sin caused his death, and I do know that he suffered for the very sins that I'm confessing. So I'm, I'm not afraid of him in the unbelieving way, like the demons who believe and shudder. I believe and I fear him because he's great. I don't fear him because he hates me. I love him, but I also know that he did the work for me and it humbles me. And I think that's part of what communion is. So if you go out of communion, and then I'll end this. If you go out of communion feeling awesome, you probably didn't do it right. Do you know what I'm saying? Because I think you come out of communion humbled, and, and that's the purpose of it. I know it's so funny. People go like, come, come to our church. It's a great time, a lot of exciting stuff, you know, Toy Story 4. And, uh, and, 
and that doesn't resemble anything that I just described, you know. So it's okay not to be, it's okay not to be okay. Okay. <laughs> Hello, Luna and Kevin. How are you guys? I'm glad you're here. I saw them on Sunday night, and I said, you got to come to join heirs, and they did it. Great. Oh, that's good. So, uh, my church, so I'm a Christian, and I'm, I'm persuaded that uh, I was predestined to, to be saved, you know, that's what I'm hearing. And uh, the Lord, he convicted me in my heart at a young age to be saved, yet I've experienced uh, a lot of um, trauma in my life. I'm aware that believers, we are not exempt from trials, but Jesus, he has a way um, of giving us tools to navigate through life. So um, I'm just being thankful because a lot of the situations in my life is kind of, you know, just any average person would just kind of like propel them to like not want to serve God, not want to serve Christ, but for some reason, um, he just, he kept, he kept doing it, you know, so my question is, what what helpful words do you have for people who have traumatic experiences, like who have immigrants, who have um, child sex, sex trafficking, things along these lines, um, rape, all, all those things. So my question is, like, what words do you give those people? Because, like, for me, I know that just because these things happen, it doesn't mean that God necessarily allowed it. You know, but it was in that he had allowed it to happen, but he wasn't the one that told these people to, like, to mistreat me. So I just wanted to know, like, what is, what is, like, what is your response to that, if my question even makes sense? No, your question makes total sense. You did a great job in articulating that. Paul says this in Second Corinthians chapter 11. He says, um, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. I've been in labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, in starvation and thirst, often hungry, in cold and without enough clothing. And apart from external things, there's the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is made to stumble without my burning concern? And then he goes on to speak of the vision that he has about uh, heaven in the midst of, his, uh, midst of his pain. So as you're speaking, I'm thinking um, that has a lot in common with the apostle uh, in terms of the hardship. And he's talking about things that happened since he was a believer. Uh, and so my mind, as I was talking about Jesus and, you know, what, how we can identify as a high priest, and I'm starting to think of, if that is true for Paul, if, if those hardships happen to Paul, then I am not exempt, 
Uh, I, in fact, most of the Bible is written because of suffering, not always to that degree or to the degree that you spoke of, but it is suffering. And then he says this, because you said, what words of comfort could I give you? And again, going back to the first part, chapter one of Second Corinthians, he says these most beautiful words. He goes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse three, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. But whenever we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or whether we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is working in your perseverance in the same sufferings which we also suffer. And he goes on to mention, again, comfort in verse 7. We're sharers of our comfort. So it seems as if Paul's saying, all the things that I've gone through and will go through, that I have been comforted by God is for the purpose of ministry, to comfort others. And so what happened to you, what happened to me, and uh, to greater or lesser degrees to everybody, is a ministry opportunity that God has given us to identify. Again, going back to the idea of our high priest who identifies with our weaknesses, that we can now understand just a little bit more about the plight you mentioned, immigration, sex trafficking, uh, rape, that somehow other people can't identify with. And so we that doesn't make us a better counselor. That doesn't make us a better, um, you know, Christian. But our empathy has so deepened that people, when they hear what God has done through us, the fact that you're here, the fact that you love Christ and want to be a part of the church, is now an encouragement to those who don't have that encouragement. And they would say so many times, and you hear this, my life is so horrible. I, I think so many things have happened to me. How could, you, how could God ever want me? I'm like, I'm like this uh, discarded, you know, uh, um, you know, horrible uh, creation. And you, God, well, first of all, that's the only kind that God saves. It's just not all of us have had it physically, but all of us are. I say this all the time, and I don't know if people believe me. We're much more miserable sinners than we ever believed. You're much worse than you know. Much worse. And you go, I know. Well, maybe you know, but most people don't know. And so, to the degree that we are aware of the sinfulness of our sin is to the degree that we can praise God and give him glory for his salvation. Okay, great question. So I had no idea you guys were so hungry for information. Uh, <laughs> just ask us. Um, anybody else before we move on? So how does this all relate back to... Um, the Psalms. The Psalms are the perfect place for these kind of um, groanings to be expressed. And you're going to see that with Dr. Street next week as he goes uh, back into, I'm not sure if he's finished with the, uh, no, we, we can't remember. It's been too long. Uh, but he will be in the Psalms as far as I know. And um, by the way, as I'm saying this, it's a very funny thing. When people say we're studying the Psalms, you're right. But then when you go turn to Psalms 51, you're wrong. It's Psalm 51. It just is one of those things, you know, people go, uh, turn to Psalms 51. I'm going, ah, oh. <laughs> 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 Yeah, <laughs> or Revelations. 
Turn to Revelations 5, and I'm going, it's not, I don't have that chapter. <laughs> but I know they mean Revelation, yeah. Uh, it's just we love plurals. We just love plurals. All right, well, let's end our time. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the questions. And Father, for the fact that your word either, e- either gives us the answers that we seek or presents to us the themes and the theology that helps us to consider how to come to the answer that we seek. We know Job never got an answer in his sufferings from you, even all the way through his accusations. It wasn't until the very end of the book of Job that you addressed him, and you asked him, who do you think you are? Um, Where were you when I created the world? And we thank you for the fact that You don't give answers. You are the answer. It is because of who you are that we come and we worship and that we fellowship. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. And we ask that it was a blessing to all who were here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.